listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Welcome, my name is Coleman. Um, I'm the community group's pastor here. Um, don't be distracted by my laptop. Uh, I, my iPad is from like 2008, so it can't be trusted. This is not a TED talk, this is a sermon. Uh, even though I have a laptop up here, so. Um, I also want to apologize ahead of time that most of my examples are going to revolve around a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old because that is my phase of life. Um, I work and I parent. Is anyone else in that phase of life right now? <laughs> it's, yeah, there we go. Uh, amen. And I work with you, so I can't tell stories about y'all, right, about work. So I'm stuck with my kids. Um, and if you remember, if you are here December, uh, I told a uh, children's book story, I actually retold it. I'm not gonna do that this morning, but my first example comes from a children's book. My apologies. Uh, it's this book that we get for Anne from the library and it's black and white. Um, all the pages are, and there's no words. So my wife can't stand it because I get to it first and I get to make up the story and then she has no idea what to say because our four-year-old corrects her, right? Um, but anyway, so we read through it and on each page it's black, white, and gray, but there's this one tiny bright red piece of chalk on each page. Um, and there, there could be chaos happening all over the picture, but your eyes are drawn to that piece of chalk, right? And you're wondering from the beginning what, what is gonna happen. Like why, why is this piece of chalk there? Why is it the only thing that's red? But your eyes are drawn there. And eventually as, as the story progresses, the chalk becomes a bigger part and it starts drawing things and those things are red too. And, and eventually at the end, the chalk is the climax. It is the thing that, that brings resolution to the plot. It's the thing that everything was all about all along, but you didn't know why from the beginning. So that's what we're gonna do this morning. All right, in Exodus 33 and 34, if you have your Bibles, love for you to turn there with me. There's some in front of you um, if you want one there. And we're gonna look at this black, white, and gray story of Moses and the Israelites and their sin, um, but all woven through it is this red thread of Jesus. And so we're gonna look at Jesus this morning. We're, I've never done a sermon quite like this before where I'm basically just gonna walk through this passage and point out Jesus to you. And my goal is that you would see Jesus. There's this uh, scene after Jesus died and he rose again and, and his friends, disciples didn't know he'd risen and they're walking down this road to Emmaus. There's two of them and they're, they're sad and they're upset. And then this man starts walking beside them and says, why are you sad? He said, well, because our Messiah died and we thought he was gonna be the king. And this was Jesus that, that, that came to them. And they didn't know it. And it says, Jesus began to unpack all of the scriptures concerning himself. And these were Old Testament scriptures. These were this story right here. So Jesus would have walked to those disciples through this story and said, hey, I'm there. I'm right in the middle of it. And that's what we wanna do together this morning. Um, before we do, uh, I want us to just pray real quick, the very beginning. Um, and this is what I want our prayer to be. In, in John chapter 12, there's a couple of men that come to Philip and they say, we want to see Jesus. Um, and that's what I want the prayer of our hearts to be this morning. So if you close your eyes with me and join with me in your heart and say that, God, this morning, we want to see Jesus. Make him clear today, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, Exodus 33, jumping in. Um, remember Talabo last week, if you were here, Israelites made a golden calf, um, honeymoon period of their walk with God. Uh, 20 days in, they make this golden calf, they worship it, they break covenant with God. And so now they are separated from God by their sin. And this is what happens. Verse 133, the Lord said to Moses, depart 
Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, right? At this point, this is a mirror, almost word for word, what he said to them earlier in Exodus, all right? So he's saying them again, go to this land, I'm giving you this land, but then there's something different. Let's keep reading. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, onward. And then verse seven. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. All right, so we're gonna kind of walk through this passage and we're gonna read a little bit and then I'm gonna point to Jesus. Then we're gonna read a little bit and I'm gonna point to Jesus, okay? So we have our first picture of Jesus, but before we do, I wanna tell you a story. I had fleas in my house last October and I think I might've mentioned that when I preached last, but I had fleas in my house last October and they were everywhere. Has anyone ever had fleas in their house? It is awful, right? You just feel dirty, right? And the weird thing is, is that we don't have a pet. So I don't know what that says about <laughs> the hygiene of my family. Um, I'll let you make your own conclusions, but we had fleas in our house. And so I was going to Home Depot and getting the shelf stuff to spray and it wasn't working, right? Because all that stuff's a gimmick and they just want you to call the you know, professionals. And I didn't wanna call the professionals. So I was doing it on my own. And then there was this one day, like three weeks into our flea infestation and my wife comes to me and she says, we're out. Uh, we're going to my mom's house with the girls you deal with this and we'll come back, okay? And what had happened was, Anne, my daughter, had like 40 flea bites on her in the morning and my wife just had enough. And so they left and went to her mom's house and it wasn't a big deal. Her mom lives 10 minutes down the road, so it wasn't that bad, but I, I, it was serious, right? I knew this was serious. I needed to get the fleas out. So I called the professionals to get the fleas out. So that was, the, that was kind of our story there. Well, this is really similar to what's happened with Israel. God's already told them, hey, fleas are a big deal. Your sin's a big deal. But they didn't really believe it until they jumped straight into sin. And then God said, I'm out. I can't be in the house where there's fleas. I can't be in the camp where there's sin. And there's sin in your camp. And I can't be there. And so we have this in verse seven, Moses takes the tent and he takes it from the middle of Israel which is where it was supposed to be in, in, in Exodus chapter 25, verse three, it says, I will be in the middle of Israel. The tabernacle will be in your midst. He takes it and he puts it way out from camp because God can't be there. He's gonna consume them in his wrath. And that's what we step into. How many of you know that sin separates us from God? Always, sin separates us from God. In Isaiah 59, one and two, um, it says this, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ears dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our sin separates us. The Israel's sin separated them from God. So what do they do? 
because God said, I, I can't go with you into Israel. So they basically don't have a God anymore and they don't wanna go up without God, so they're stuck. God's outside the camp, there's sin in the camp. How do they remove the sin? Um, well, going on with our story, I called the professionals. Uh, I forgot who I called. I called a lot of them, and they all gave me the same price. I think they're all in league together. Uh, called the professionals, and they said, uh, have you seen any rodents around your house? Um, I said, well, there's this possum we keep hearing banging on our roof. And then we saw him like walking on our backyard the other day. And so they said, well, that might be the problem. And so I followed the possum the next morning. I was, I was eating breakfast and this possum started wandering in my backyard and then he disappeared on my house and he went to the crawl space, right? So this possum was living under my house, bringing fleas. And so they said, well, get the possum out of your house and the fleas will go with it, right? And so in the middle of the night, I hear him banging. It's just me because my wife and kids are at another house, right? Uh, I hear, hear the possum banging. And so I run outside in my PJs and I get a big bag of like soil and I just stuff it on the hole. And, and lock him out, right? And that possum is gone forever. Um, and, and with him, I wish I could say went my fleas, but they didn't go. So they had to come spray poison. But, uh, but, but, but supposedly he, they were supposed to go with him. And that's exactly what God provided. See, in the Old Testament, God, in order to draw near to the camp, needed the sin to leave the camp. And so he provided something called a scapegoat. How many of you heard of a scapegoat before? It's actually a biblical idea. And what they would do on the day of atonement is they would take two goats and one they would kill as a sacrifice and the other one, they would lay their hands on it. The elders and the priests would lay their hands on it and they would confess all the sins of the people from that year, right? Days worth of sins. They would lay on this goat, this confused, poor, innocent goat. And, and then they would send the goat outside the camp into the wilderness to starve and die. Sorry if you love animals, but that's what would happen, right? And that goat, symbolically would carry their sin outside the camp so that God could come into the camp, right? Just like that possum carried my fleas outside my house so my wife could come back in, right? The, the goat would carry their sins out so God could come back and be with his people. How many of you know that Jesus is our scapegoat? Jesus is in this passage, he is our scapegoat. And God was separated from us because of our sin and Jesus took our sin and carried it as far from us as the east is from the west. Carried it out of the camp of your life so that Christ could come in and have a home with you. Hebrews 13, 12 says this. So Jesus also suffered outside the camp in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Christ went outside the camp with your sins and died so that God could come in and have a relationship with us. Ephesians 2, 12 through 13, this is your story. If you're a Christian here this morning, this is you. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, your, his tent was far away from your camp, you were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Praise God, your sins separated you from God and yet in Christ when you confessed your sins to him when you gave your life to Christ and you laid your hand you in a sense laid your hands on that goat and sent him far away so that Christ could come and have a relationship with you so the first thing we see Jesus is that our scapegoat ends our separation our scapegoat ends our separation but if you don't know Jesus this morning your sins are still separating you from God and you need a scapegoat for God to draw near you so let's keep reading. I'm Exodus 33, eight through 11. So we're gonna pick up where we left off. Verse eight. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. Each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. 
when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance to the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, son of Nun, a young man, would depart from the tent. Let's go, uh, go down to... 34.1. So what happens is, is we get a section of Moses' intercession next. So Moses goes to the tent. He goes before the Lord and we get a, a snippet of him praying to God. And what does he pray about? He prays for Israel. He says, God, I know that you're separated from them and them, they're separated from you, but would you please come and be in our midst because we can't go anywhere without you. And God says, no, there's sins of separating. And Moses says, no, please, you've got to come with us. And so God hears his prayer and he says, yes, and in chapter 34, verse one, this is what Moses does. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come throughout all the, be seen, shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. And go down to verse nine with me. This is what Moses said to the Lord for Israel. If now I, Moses, have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for this is a stiff necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So this is what's happening here. Israel separated from God. Moses is a friend of God. Moses didn't make the calf. He didn't worship the calf. He wasn't there. Him and Joshua were up on the mountain meeting with God. And so therefore this tent, this tent of meeting, him and Joshua are the only ones that can come near God. And so Moses is going to God on behalf of Israel. And God has said to Moses, go up to the promised land. And Moses said, no. Right, It's a scary place to be telling God no, but he said, no, I won't go up because you're not gonna go with us. And that's disaster. So I won't go up and God says go and Moses says no and they have this conversation back and forth. And Moses has, and we let in on this intercession and Moses is pleading for them. And when he says he met with God face to face, look back at verse 11. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. He's not talking about actually seeing God's face because as we're gonna see in a minute, that would mean Moses would die, Right? You can't see God's face and live, but it means that it's a picture. Face-to-face -face is a picture of friendship. What he's saying is, is that Moses had friendship with God. Moses was God's friend. They would, they would converse together. They would talk back and forth, and that's what we see in this passage. So Moses was a friend of God, and God loved him, and he found favor in God's sight. And so he had access to God. He could come before God and bring whatever his requests were. But the Israelites were God's enemy. Right? They couldn't come to the tent. They couldn't come to God. They couldn't pray. They couldn't talk with God. They had set themselves up as an enemy of God and they had no access to the Father. But praise God for the Israelites, Moses was also a friend of sinners. He wasn't just God's friend. When God said, hey, I love you, Moses didn't say, cool, let's go, right? He said, no, 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 you gotta be friends with them too, right? You've gotta, you've gotta be with them. And so Moses is a friend of sinners, Israel. Moses went up the mountain on their behalf, right? Do y'all remember we, we read this a few weeks ago that this is the second time Moses went up the mountain with tablets, right? And the first time at the bottom of the mountain, God made a covenant with all of Israel. 
We had the elders come up and then all of Israel was there and God repeated the law and Israel said, yes, we will obey it. We will do exactly what you said. 20 days later, they fall, they make a calf and they sin against God and they fail. This time, only Moses goes up. He says, don't let those sinners be seen anywhere near that mountain because I'll consume my wrath. You come up. So Moses, the only one that didn't sin, goes up the mountain on their behalf to meet with God for them. And Moses prays for them. He intercedes for them. And he identified with their sin. Look in verse nine of 34. He said, pardon our iniquity and our sin. Did Moses make a calf? No. Did he worship it? No. But he said, pardon, he identifies with their sin. And he pleaded with God. And he said, if you love me, if I have found favor in your sight, then forgive them. If you love me, forgive them. That's what he said. And then he made peace with God for all of Israel. What about Jesus? Jesus is a friend of God, right? But praise God, he's also a friend of sinners like you and me. Matthew eleven sixteen 16 says that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And Jesus prays for you. He intercedes for you at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus identified with your sin. 2 Corinthians five twenty one says he became our sin for us. Right? And Jesus went up the mountain of Calvary on your behalf because you couldn't be seen near that mountain. And he went up Calvary with your sin on his shoulders and he died on a cross for you, on your behalf. And when he was on that cross, he said, Father, what? Forgive them, right? If you're pleased with me, if you love me, then forgive them for their sin. He interceded, he was your advocate. He was up on the cross for you and he made peace with God for you in your place where though you were an enemy, now you are a friend because Jesus is a friend of sinners. Praise God. So what we learn, the second thing we learn in, this, in Exodus is that Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our advocate. First John 2, 1 says that if anyone sins, then we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He stands in your place. He's your access to the Father and he is an unsleeping advocate. He is always standing for you at the right hand of the Father. But so often we feel like Elf, don't we? How many of you have seen the movie Elf? Anybody here? I love Elf. It's like top three movies for me. I watch it all year round. And uh, Elf had gone into the tower to find his father, right? Empire State Building. And his father kicked him out uh, because his father didn't want to face him. And so, I mean, he was dressed like an elf, right? Uh, so he's coming back in. He finds a gift for someone special. You remember that at the mall? And he wants to give it to his dad. And so he's coming in with a gift for someone special and he's walking in boldly, right? And he's walking up and he's, he's super confident. He's got his gift. And then he sees the security desk with the two guards. And as he gets close, he starts looking down and then he walks really, really close. He's cowering away and he's kind of looking up at him. And sure enough, they see him and they grab hold of him and say, what are you doing here? And they carry him out and they throw him out into the street, Right? And, and as he's going out, he has this gift. He says, give this to my father, right? And he throws the gift back and he asks him to give it to his dad, right? So often, I think me and I think you feel like that with God. We know we don't deserve to be in his presence, right? When you come in here this morning, you messed up yesterday and this morning. Like if you have kids, that was close. I must give him water over. If you have kids, then you messed up this morning, right? You got impatient with them. Uh, you got frustrated with your wife or your husband or, or whatever, you, you've sinned and you come in here and you, and you have a problem with God and you know that. And so we can come to the Lord in prayer and feel like we shouldn't be there. 
feel like he's frustrated and he's angry with us. And we almost throw our prayer up and leave, right? It's like, here, this is what I want. Let me just go. I can't be here. And yet you have an advocate. That is not true of you. You have an advocate. And so you can walk boldly to the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and find grace in time of need because you, friend of Jesus, have an advocate. Jesus, who's a friend of God, but he's also a friend of sinners like you and sinners like me. Praise God. Our advocate gives us access to God. Our advocate gives us access. So let's keep reading. Um, We just read this, this story of Moses going up on behalf of God, and now we've got this story running in parallel of Moses and God. So look at 33, verse 18. Um, so Moses is talking to God on his own behalf now. And he says, please, God, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hands until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so 34 uh, verse five, let's look at what happens. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. Check this out, this is God's defining of himself for us merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So there's a conundrum in the scriptures that wasn't fully solved before Christ. So during this time, Moses sees it. It's a conundrum of God. And you've got the front side of God, which is his holiness and his wrath and his justice. And you've got his backside, which is his goodness and his mercy and his love and his forgiveness. And yet he's not dichotomized. They're both together in one person. And so whereas Moses can't see his face because it's holy, they could see his back. And we have this here in this description of God, don't we? We have his goodness, right? We have his love and his mercy and his grace and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and he, and he forgives. But then at the very end, like thrown in there, right, for our grief, it says he will by no means clear the guilty. And we have this justice and this holiness of God that's, that's together with his love. And, and for those of you, um, for a lot of us, that, that's hard, it's a hard pill to swallow The idea of hell, the idea of justice, the idea of holiness, the idea of wrath in God is hard for us to comprehend. But let me tell you, if you've ever been victimized, if you've ever been abused, if you've ever been hurt, if you've ever been majorly sinned against, if injustice has been done to you, this is good news for you. Because God will make all things right at the end. There will be a day, Christ came in love, but Christ will come again on one day in judgment. And he will make all things evil things right. He will carry out justice for everything. So you don't have to fight for your own justice. You don't have to get justice here on earth because Christ is going to get it for you. But we have these two sides of God. And in this story, Moses has been talking to God and he's been pleading for Israel and God started saying yes. Okay. And however many of you have kids, when you start saying yes, there's going to be trouble. Okay. Um, so when I, when I go through the grocery store uh, with my kids, 
um, they always ask for things, right? And they ask for small things and they ask for ridiculous things, like huge things that I could never get them, right? Um, but one, one, one day we're walking to the grocery store and Ann asked me for a box of raisins, small box of raisins, right? And I thought, sure, I'll give her the box of raisins and she'll quit asking me for other things, right? Right? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. From then on, she asked for everything in the store, literally everything. It was like, can I have this? Can I have this? Can I have this? And she expected me to give it to her. And we walked past the candy aisle, which is a mistake. And she asked for every individual item on that candy aisle. She wanted it all because I just said yes. So she thought, yes, sure, I'll ask for everything. And that's what Moses does. Moses is asking for God's glory. He basically, God says yes to something. And Moses said, well, then give me your glory, right? But Moses doesn't know what he's asking. And God tells him that. He said, I can't show you my glory because you'll die. You're a sinner too, Moses. Yeah, you didn't make a calf, you didn't worship it, but you sin. You might not have been with the worst of sinners, but your sin still separates. And if I come in for your presence, then you will die. And so he says, I will let my goodness pass before you, only God's goodness. So I want you to picture this scene in chapter 33. Um, verse 22 through 23. So Moses is standing there and God said, this is what I'm gonna do. Uh, you're gonna stand there and I'm gonna, I'm gonna put you on a rock, okay? And as I'm walking up towards you, what is Moses seeing as God's walking towards him? His face, right? But he can't see his face. So while I'm walking towards you, I'm gonna hide you in the cleft of this rock. And I'm also, just in case you peek, I'm gonna hold your, my hand in front of you so you don't see me and die. And then once I pass by you, you can come out and you can see my back. So, so he hides Moses in the rock and he's walking towards him with all of God's justice towards Moses and his wrath towards Moses and, and all his holiness aimed at Moses' sin, but Moses is hidden, right? And then he walks past Moses and Moses comes out and sees the backside of his goodness. You'll have the scene here, right? And so my question for us is who gets God's wrath? Where does his wrath towards Moses go? Two places, right? It goes on the rock, Right? The rock that he's hiding in, the cleft of the rock, experiences all of God's wrath towards Moses so that Moses doesn't see any of it. What else gets God's wrath? God's hand, right? God's hand, God himself, his own hand is guarding Moses from God's wrath. It's experiencing God's wrath for Moses, for Moses, so that Moses passes by, he sees the backside of God's goodness. Why his back, okay? Literally in the Hebrew is backside, right? It's not back, it's backside, all right? He sees the backside of God's wrath or his goodness, right? Why? It's not that God is aloof. It's not that God is walking away from Moses. It is that God is standing in front of Moses, claiming Moses as his own. You see, for those of you that have claimed Christ as your own and whom Christ has claimed you, all you see is God's goodness. And God stands before you to claim you, like a big brother on a playground defending his younger sibling. God stands in front of you and says, that one right there, that's mine. And all he sees is my goodness. But what about Christ? Jesus, all throughout the scriptures, is the rock, isn't he? He said over and over again that Jesus is the rock. Christ is the rock that you are hidden in. So that if you're in Christ, if you're hidden in Christ, you experience none of God's wrath. Christ took it for you, right? Colossians 3.3 says that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Praise Jesus, you were hidden in the cleft of the rock so that Christ experiences your wrath for you. But Christ is also the hand of God. I don't know if you saw it, but in Isaiah 59 that we just read, the very beginning when it talks about our separation between God, the very first verse it says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. What's it talking about? Who's the savior? 
Who's the hand of God? It's Jesus. Jesus is the hand of God. So not only is Christ the rock, Christ is the hand of God that shields you from the wrath of God. And here's the thing about God's hand shielding you from his wrath is that God himself is experiencing the pain and the hell that was due for you for your sin. God's heart was broken. God felt your wrath that you deserved in Christ on the cross. God himself was broken in Christ so that you could only see his goodness now and evermore. Praise Jesus. And my question for you Christians this morning is what do you think of when you think of God? What comes to your mind? A.W. Tozer says that what we picture in our minds when we think of God is one of the most important things about us. So what do you picture? When you go to pray, when you go to read your Bible, when you come into church, what is God's disposition towards you? Is he distant? Is he frustrated? Is he disappointed? Is he angry? Is he aloof? Because that's not a biblical definition if you're in Christ. Yeah, God can be disappointed in you because of your sin, but the undercurrent, the foundation of your position in front of Christ is is his goodness. It's his mercy. It's his grace. It's that he's slow to anger towards you. It's that he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is God's disposition towards you. So when you come to God in prayer, you are dishonoring the Lord when you think he's holding you at distance because of your sin. You're dishonoring the gospel. When you trust in Jesus, your sin is no more and you have perfect relationship with God and he smiles on you. He rejoices in you. He delights in you. So I'd encourage you, go to this scripture in Exodus 34 and look at God's goodness and read over it and meditate on it and see that is God's heart towards you in Christ. Our rock makes us right. But the conundrum's not fixed, right? Because there's still sin. There's still sin in the camp and God's holiness and his goodness are still not brought together because this was 3,500 years ago before Christ, right? Christ hadn't come yet. Christ solved the dilemma by dying on the cross for our sins, but he hasn't come yet. So God needed to find another way to solve this dilemma between his goodness and his wrath. So God put a patch on the problem as they waited for Jesus. And we're gonna read it. I'm in Exodus 34, after God, Moses on the mountain and God's renewing his covenant with Israel. And he then repeats the law, except it was like six chapters. It's only half a chapter here. He only hits bits and pieces of the law, but right dead in the center of him repeating the law is verse 20. And verse 20 says this, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb and if you won't redeem it, you shall make its neck. He's talking about firstborns. And then he says this, all the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem and none shall appear before me empty-handed. All the firstborn of your sons, so if you have a firstborn son, you take him to the temple to redeem him, to pay for the sins of your family and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Have you ever been empty-handed? Um, I had a buddy in college. Um, how many of you are Georgia fans in here? Uh, so I, I went to Athens, I uh, went to Georgia, and there there's a, a restaurant called the Five and Ten. Has anyone been there? Uh, students can't go there because it's too expensive. But once a year, they put on this big dinner, and the chef at the Five and Ten has people over to a home, and he cooks them a four-course meal. And it's free, and it's a, it's a drawing, it's a lottery. And so my friend's buddy got tickets, two tickets. So he invited my friend. Um, and, and I mean, incredible experience. He could never afford five and 10, right? It'd be like 40 or $50, which to a college student is like 500. So he couldn't afford it. So he gets to have this meal. And so he goes in, they have this three hour long ordeal, and most amazing meal he's ever had. And at the very end, the host stands up. They've had the dessert. They said, did you enjoy the meal tonight? And everyone said, yes. And they said, well, 
Thank you all so much for coming. It's time for us to leave. I'll be standing at the door um, for your donations. Uh, and we would recommend around 90 to $100. Uh, and my friend, Lewis, A, is a super introvert, doesn't like to cause a scene. B, has no money in his pockets because he thought this thing was free. C, it doesn't have $90 to his name right now. He's a poor college student. And so he is freaking out right? Internally, like, what am I going to do? Like, I can't appear at the door and say, hey, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to keep walking. Like, I appreciated the meal, but I can't appear before this lady empty-handed. What am I going to do, right? And you can imagine that's exactly what the firstborn son feels because God's provision, he wasn't going to kill their children, their firstborn son. What, What redeem means is he would take with him a spotless lamb to Jerusalem, to the temple, and he would sacrifice that lamb and that lamb would die instead of that son, Okay. So you can imagine his anxiety the week before, right? Like, where's my lamb? Right, dad, you got my lamb? It's, it's somewhere. And, you, and he'd like tie it to his belt. And he always had the lamb with him. And he went up to Jerusalem, he probably carried the thing the whole way. He's like, I am not gonna appear to the temple empty-handed. Like, I'm gonna have my lamb. I'm gonna hold on to this lamb. And he, didn't, he guarded that lamb, protected it. He held on tight to his lamb, right? It was the sacrifice for the sins of his family. And he did not want to appear before God empty-handed. And my question for us today is there will be a day when you're gonna stand before the judgment seat of Christ, every single one of us, when Christ returns, it's gonna happen. Bible says it will. And my question for you is what are you gonna be holding in your hand when you appear before Christ? What are you gonna tell him, right? Are you gonna say, man, I didn't know whether Jesus was it or not, but I, I did pretty good. I did the best I could with what I've got. Here we go, here's my life. I've messed up, but I've never slept around um, I've never murdered anyone. I, I've, I'm honest in my work most of the times. I, I love my kids. I take them out on daddy-daughter days. I'm pretty good. Here I am. God, forgive me. I didn't know. I didn't know any better. Isaiah 64, uh, 6 says that all of our best deeds are like filthy rags before him to whom we must give account. So we're standing there with what we think is gold in our hands. But when we stand before Christ and we look at our hands, we'll see that it's filthy rags. We have nothing. You will be empty handed. But if you've trusted Jesus, then Jesus is your firstborn lamb. Christ is the lamb. He is this lamb that that the son would take before the temple and present instead of himself. He is your lamb. So that when you come before God on that last day, you hang on tight to Christ. And you, hold, and you hold it and say, I'm not empty handed. I have the lamb, I have Christ. He was my sacrifice on the cross. And the father will smile at you. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your master. That is your story. And let me plead with you, Christian, hold fast to Christ, okay? It is so easy to get caught up in doing the right thing that we miss Jesus. That we somehow think that God is pleased with you if you are good, if you're kind, if you're doing the right things, hold fast to Christ. He is your lamb. You have nothing. You're gonna be empty handed on that day if you don't have Christ. And for those of you that don't know Jesus, who haven't claimed him as your lamb, you will be empty handed on that day unless you have Christ. You don't wanna be empty handed before the Lord. So that's our story today. Our lamb redeems our life. Our lamb redeems our life. So we're about to take communion together. Uh, what better day to do it when we're looking at Jesus and, and gazing at him. And this is a meal to separate Jesus. If you're helping with communion, get on up and head to the back now. This is a meal for us to celebrate Jesus. And every single one of us in this room are in one of two places, okay? We're one of two people. Imagine the scene. 
Back at the beginning of chapter 33, when Moses is going out to the tent, right? And he's going out there to worship, but what are the Israelites doing? They're standing at the entrance of their tent door and they're, they're worshiping, right? Moses is meeting with God, a friend of God, talking with God, and the Israelites are worshiping from their tent door. They're separated from God, enemies of God, unable to come before God. And if this morning you feel like you're Moses, I'm a friend of God, I know Jesus, praise God. But a lot of us in this room are coming here week after week and we feel far off. We feel like I'm, I'm worshiping from afar, I'm singing the songs, I'm doing the stuff, but I'm not a friend of God. Never, I don't walk with him. That's for the for Bill and Gardner and, 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 the, and the pastors and elders and the serious people, right? I'm just, I'm just a normal Christian, right? I'm, I'm standing far off. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not a friend of God, but, but it's okay, I'm in, right? Well, let me tell you something. Those Israelites were not friends of God. Those were, they were enemies. Those Israelites were not a picture of the church standing far off and worshiping. Y'all, if you are in Christ, are a friend of Jesus. You aren't far off, you're near. But let me tell you, if, if the Lord is laying on your heart this morning that you are far off, maybe you're seeing Jesus for the first time um, and you're seeing him clearly and he's saying, hey, I want you to be a friend of God, but you know that you're not. I wanna invite you to come today. So just like the Israelites, they laid down their ornaments and it said they never picked him up again to lay down your sin at the feet of Jesus. Whatever that thing that you wanna hang on to, lay it down to never pick it up again. And just like the Israelites trusted Moses to go up the mountain on their behalf and trusted him to make peace with God, you trust Jesus to go up the mountain. He went up Calvary on your behalf and he died for you and he rose again and he is interceding for you. Do you believe that this morning? If that's gonna be your story, if, if you wanna have that story for the first time, then I would encourage you as they pass around the cups for you to take one. And as we have this moment of reflection for you to come before the Lord and tell him, God, I, I confess my sin before you. I no longer wanna live for myself. I wanna live for you. I believe you died for me and that you rose again. And then as we all take communion together as one, you take it with us, maybe for the first time as a friend of Jesus. But if, you, if, you, if that's not your story yet, if you're like, I'm far off and I don't wanna be close right now, I'm not ready for that, then I would just ask you, let it pass by. Don't, don't take a cup. This isn't your story yet. It doesn't mean anything to you yet. But if you're in Christ, if you're a friend of Jesus, if you're a sinner, but you've been redeemed by Christ, I don't want there to be any hesitation in your heart at enjoying Christ with us in communion, right? If you're walking in repentance, if yeah, you sinned yesterday, this morning, you're gonna sin when you leave here, but, but you are covered with the scapegoat, the blood of Christ, then come and rejoice in him as we reflect. Bring your sin before the Lord and confess it to him and thank him that he is your scapegoat, that removed your sin from you as far as the east is from the west, that he is the, the one that went up the mountain on your behalf. Enjoy Jesus as you reflect on him right now. So I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna have a minute or so for reflection. I'm gonna just pass around. Then I want you to hold the cups and then we'll all eat and drink together. Father, thank you. Thank you, God, that we can come to you now as friends, not as enemies because of Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd move in our hearts. Let us rejoice in the gospel of our salvation. Rejoice in Jesus. Thank you for that red thread that runs through the story of scripture and that runs through the story of our life. Thank you for Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.